Now we're in 41 Brighton Square, which uh, Joyce, I think, would have approved of for this reason, if for nothing more. It's not a square, it's a triangle. But this is the house he was born in on the 2nd of February, 1882, and it's still standing here in beautiful condition and should be standing here in another 100 years, as far as I can see. Um, We've been in the actual bedroom where, in all likelihood, Joyce was born. Uh, And I learned from the owner of the house now, Mr Harper, that I asked, why was it that Joyce was baptised in St Joseph's in Ternure rather than the Church of the Three Patrons, which is right beside us, you might say. And uh, he was able to tell me that this is in the parish of St Joseph's, Ternure. Um, Joyce um, was born here and I think they lived, the family lived here not for not very much more than a year and after that they moved to Castlewood Avenue in Rathmines which is about a half a mile away from here James Joyce like his greatest book Ulysses had many beginnings and many meanderings but wherever he was and whatever the ambivalence of his feelings it was the Ireland of his origins and the Dublin of his youth which possessed him for the rest of his life. That possession and its implications are the theme of this programme. He couldn't escape from Ireland and from the material which was with him from his childhood, uh, the streets of Dublin, the accents of the people. And these were what he used uh, uh, right through the whole of his books. He couldn't escape from it. And uh, when uh, when he was asked would he ever go back to Dublin, he said, have I ever left it? This was... 20 or 30 years after he left Ireland. He was a poor boy from Ballybock who got his early education in the Christian Brothers schools in North Richmond Street. He left the Royal University with a pass BA, that parchment which establishes without yea or nay one's entitlement to be a boy messenger. And I think this is one of the things that haunted him all his life and that the later famous Joyce in the Clongo's blazer striding into Fouquet's was wondering how many of the waiters knew that he was a pass BA. I'm afraid that Joyce, because of his lack of academic education, his erudition was at the same level as Ezra Pound's. And I think that their favourite bird was not so much the owl of Minerva as the jackdaw, and I think you have to say reams in his connection. Only a past BA would have written Finnegan's Poor Old Wake. And if it is a dream, to my mind it's the dream of a great autodidact. He was, in fact, uh, an Edwardian Dubliner. In his manner, in his, in his uh, attitudes... And, in, in the very conventional, you know, family kind of life. Uh, I would think that he, he felt himself to be Irish and, and to be Dublin, certainly. Uh, but, of course, he belonged to the world also. Uh, he was very conscious, of his, uh, very conscious of his worth. I mean, I suppose no man of genius is, is not. Um, he wasn't easy to get to see in those days in Paris... Uh, I happened to get the encre because he knew my father in the old days, uh, and he was uh, he was a great one for old old loyalties and old friendships. You know, he he liked to keep those up. Um, but uh, I wouldn't say that he had any uh, particular hostility to Irish people at all. I would echo the kind of things that Neil Sheridan was saying. Uh, I didn't know him. My father knew his father, who was a corkman. But uh, one gets from, from Elman's great book and from the other books one has read about Joyce the impression that he was very much a man of the, the Edwardian time. That's to say that he was very conventional in his ways and very respectful to women in society and didn't like people to use bad language. Mm. 
and would even on occasion go to high mass if it was a conventional thing to do. He's <laughs> yeah. a strange fellow. Yeah. I think all the business about persecution was a complete obsession, the notion that the Irish were against him and that he was being shot at when he came back here. It was a complete and utter obsession. I remember uh, Dr Curran saying to me, speaking about the fact that Joyce didn't come back when his father was dying and... and Curran, who was dying himself at the time, said to me with a little smile, there was nothing whatever to stop him coming back to Dublin. Nothing whatever. But I think he had a very... Inflation is the wrong word, because it, clearly he was a man of great genius, but I don't think that the world is always prepared to accept people at that kind of exaggerated valuation. Well, I think he saw himself as James Joyce, a very important fellow, who was a, a European, who had been born in Ireland... A little bit like the Duke of Wellington, who said one is not an ass because one was born in a stable. <laughs> I think it would be, uh, to put it simply, it would be a love-hate relationship, uh, such as you get in uh, marriages. And it could not be divorced from the, uh, the realisation that it was Ireland, and Dublin in particular, which had given them material for all his work, you know? When his father died, he wrote to T.S. Eliot and he said, scores of characters, scores of pages in my work came from that man. His father, was, uh, in his latter days, was a mi miserable provider. The landlords often paid the Joyce family to clear out because they used to burn the banisters in the winter for, for kindling. Yeah. Once I was in Joyce's home in Cabra Road, St. Peter's Road, Cabra, and it was miserable. The, the banisters were broken. And the backyard was all, the grass was all blackened out by, there was laundry there and a few chickens. And it was a, a very, very miserable home. He spent most of his time in the National Library. I think he went home rather reluctantly. If you were now taking the route to Grasnevin, you'd pass uh, St. Peter's Road and Fibs around, near St. Peter's Church. And in the road, inset in the road, is St. Peter's Terrace. Now, we're standing right beside the house, which is the last significant house of Joyce in Ireland and Dublin, because it was from this house he emigrated eventually to Paris and Trieste. He so admired Ibsen that he learned Norwegian in a matter of something like six weeks in order that he could write to him. And he wrote to Ibsen, and Ibsen very courteously wrote back. This uh, is also the house that he lived in, in what you'll find in the last, very last part of the portrait of the artist as a young man. It was as a university student here, he used to walk from here to the university in Stevens Green. He thought nothing of it. And the reason he walked was not for health or anything like that, but he literally didn't have a penny to pay the tram. There's no plaque on this house now, but I suppose someday there will be, because this is the only house in which you could say with any certainty that he did a lot of his writing. A lot of his early work was actually written here. Joyce and Oliver St. John Gogarty both lived on the north side of Dublin when, on a memorable occasion, they called on the poet W.B. Yeats. Gogarty would place the incident on Yeats's birthday in June 1905, though by that time Joyce was far away from Dublin in Trieste. And everybody knew it was Joyce, uh, Yeats's 40th birthday. But when I... Uh, when I made an epiphany, so to speak, told Joyce this or let it out, at the first tram stop, Joyce got out. Yates was uh, lodging in the Cavendish Hotel, number one Cavendish Row, which is in Rutland Square. Uh, and he, he solemnly walked in and he knocked at Yates's door and Yates opened the door of the sitting room and he said, what age are you, sir? 
The jade said, I'm 40. You are too old for me to help. I bid you goodbye. And it, Yeats was greatly impressed at the impertinence of the thing. I used to talk to him about Paris, especially about the Russian ballet, which was very popular at the time. I used to enthuse about it, but he rather poured cold water and said that it was the fashion. In fact, I think his mind was moving in Dublin all the time. You know, he appreciated Paris. He said Paris was a convenient city, but I never found out exactly what he meant by it. But his heart was in Dublin, and in a conversation he would always return back to Dublin and would ask, which I didn't know, the price of bread, the price of bread, the price of drink. He also had a great admiration for the different things, the different... Um, drink expressions, take it in your right hand and say the following words after me. He used to quote that. And he, there were other Irish expressions that he admired. The late 30s, I, I knew him uh, pretty well. And uh, in fact, the at that period, he was at the height of his fame in Paris. Uh, it could be very embarrassing because when he sat down to eat, uh, you know, people came to stare at him and that sort of thing. Um, I last saw him about, I think it was the end of May, 39, shortly before the war. And um, he had just moved then from uh, Square Robillac into a flat in the Rue des Vignes, which was his, his last home, actually, in Paris. Uh, the place the day I saw him was half furnished because Nora was looking after the moving, since his eyesight didn't allow him to do anything like that. And uh, the furniture that had arrived already, there were two interesting items in it. He did have the portrait of his father by Patrick Tuhi, and uh, he also had a, a rug on the floor with a design showing the liffy from its source to its mouth. And he pointed this out with great pride. It had been given to him by an American. But um, he... Finnegan's Wake had only just come out at the time, and he had a copy of it there, the favour and favour edition. I think he was very dejected at the fact that Finnegan's Wake didn't receive the kind of um, attention that he would expect after 17 years' work. Naturally, the war, the onset of the war, didn't help, the threat of the war. Um, but he, uh, he still talked about... Uh, he talked mostly about Dublin. Mm -hmm. He did talk about the war, and his, his attitude was interesting in contrast to the attitude of my French friends there. They all, you know, they, they didn't want to know. I you know, said, pas de guerre, jamais de guerre. And he said, what do you think? What are they doing at home? What do they feel at home? And I said, all the Gombean men are buying in plenty of tea. He said, they're right. You see, so he had the same idea. He had a taxi practically waiting for him to go south, which he did uh, afterwards. At that, down on that last uh, meeting, uh, I brought, as I've written somewhere, I brought with me the recently published At Swim Two Birds, uh, Colonel Brown's book, and uh, found to my astonishment that he already knew about it. And he didn't read novels now at this time. He couldn't uh, spare his sight. And I was puzzled about this, that it had only been out about two months or something. And But the grapevine had worked. Sam Beckett had said, you know, I think this is somebody you ought, you ought to take an interest in. So he did know about it. And then I gave him this uh, copy from Colonel Brown with an inscription on it. And um, the inscription was a peculiar one. 
It was to James Joyce with lots of what's on page 205. And you had to go to page 205, you said, find underline the phrase diffidence of the author. But he read it. It was the last uh, book, last novel, certainly, he ever read, and went to a great deal of trouble to have it reviewed by various uh, academic people in France. Even though the war was, even when he had gone south, he was still writing to me about this project of getting it reviewed, which failed because one person he had lined up to review it died of a heart attack quite suddenly, so that was that. because Joyce got a, a, what do you call it, a patch on uh, that famous Sullivan. He gathered everybody he could think of to go to that, to, to applaud Sullivan. He wanted... Oh, he, Sullivan, oh yes, yeah, yes. He was certain Sullivan was the best possible singer and he wanted him to boost him and he did. Joyce's efforts to promote the career of Cork-born John Sullivan as the world's greatest tenor became almost legendary. His concern to find a reviewer in Paris for Flann O'Brien's new book was another example of his interest in a fellow Irish artist. It was the same Flann O'Brien, Miles Nagopoline, who, when asked about early influences on Joyce, replied, who's responsible for Joyce, if not the Jesuits? But the Christian brothers had a slight part in it too, a part both he and they preferred to forget. I think that Joyce was uh, very much conditioned by he resented the poverty of his father. He admired his father, but resented the poverty in which he was brought up. He resented having been to the Christian Brothers. He never revealed that. It's not even in Gorman's book. Uh, he resented Gogarty's... Gogarty was a... Gogarty wasn't the kind of person who comes out in, in uh, Ulysses at all. He was a charming, witty, elegant man. This I know, because I knew him as, as, as a boy. Uh, he resented Gogarty, I think, and he was determined to make a thing for himself, to make himself into a great artist. And he had the technique to do it. His English is immaculate, as we all know. His Ulysses is a, a phenomenon of, of beautiful English. But I, I feel the heart is lacking. But how important was that Catholic formation as something to bounce against, as it were? You know, that you could argue that perhaps if he didn't have that kind of upbringing, he would never have, have, have uh, oh, written a, the way he did. He's a Catholic writer. There's no question about that. It's, it's, uh, the whole thing is a reflection of, of Catholic culture. There's no question about that at all, to my mind. That reflection is the wrong word, and I, I'm, 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 I'm falsifying and simplifying because it's so hard to say a thing like that. But, I mean, subtract Catholicism and what's left? <laughs> I mean, wh who, but a, who but a Roman Catholic could have written the portrait or would have wanted to? Or would have found it necessary to? <laughs> Joyce was a, a good and well-disciplined student up to the age of 15 or 16. He began to show signs of rebellion after that, but I think he did not... Uh, overtly display anything like that while he was in Belvedere. And he was also a good student in University College Dublin in his first and second years. But then his reading began to become more omnivorous and he had less 
uh, respect for the discipline and the, uh, the prescribed texts of his third year. So he didn't do so. He got a non-distinguished BA at the end of his period in, in UCD. Now, the rest of his education is based entirely on his own reading. And as I said, he was an omnivorous reader and he dipped into everything from Thomas Moore's lyrics to the Book of the Dead in Egyptian uh, theology. And uh, he used Thomas Moore's... Uh, I might illustrate the manner in which he used his reading and his education by saying how he used Thomas Moore in Finnegan's Wake. He had a volume of Thomas Moore's lyrics and the table of contents at the beginning indicates the, the title of the lyric, the air to which it was set, and the first line. Joyce never used anything but what he found in the table of contents. He has them marked with different coloured crayons in order to indicate the portion of the book, Finnegan's Wake, in which each of them would appear. And he didn't have to open any page of the rest of the book. He used the table of contents solely. There was a whole generation of people at college who were, I think, much more scholarly than Joyce. Joyce read in an undisciplined way. He wandered round the, that big round room in the National Library reading the reference books. I think that's why he never got a proper degree. But I think that this is, his, his, his learning is a, it's a special kind of learning. He purported to hate Ireland, to, that he was firmly resolved never to come back and that if he was met on that traitor's track, the hangman was waiting for him. In other words, Larkin Sherlock was sheriff at the time, and he said that Sherlock is Larkin for you, <laughs> so that they'd do him in. But in actual fact, he was indebted to Ireland, and particularly to Dublin, for the whole of his creative activity, and uh, all of Finnegan's Wake, while it purports to be universalised, a universalization of history and religion and literature, in fact, is basically Irish in an Irish accent, and it's also full of, of Gaelic expressions, which are just as discoloured and concealed as the English is. In one passage in Ulysses, Joyce quotes from a speech in favour of the Irish language delivered to a Dublin student society in 1901 by the orator John F. Taylor. So impressed was he by the speech in which comparisons were made with the Jews and the refusal to accept an allegedly superior culture that Joyce chose it for one of the only two recordings he ever made. In this case, for Sylvia Beach. In 1924, I had a recording made by his master's voice in Paris of a reading by James Joyce from his Ulysses, the only record he ever did excepting the one of Anne Olivia Plurabelle, recorded by Mr. C.K. Ogden. Joyce chose as declamatory, and so it is, the speech in the newspaper office from the Aeolus episode. His compatriots may feel, as I do, that he may have had other reasons for his choice. But, ladies and gentlemen, had the youthful Moses written to and accepted that view of life, had he bowed his head and bowed his will and bowed his spirit before that arrogant admonition, he would never have led the chosen people out of their house of bondage, nor followed the pillar of the cloud by day, 
He would never have spoken with the Eternal on Sinai's mountain top, nor ever have come down with the lights of inspiration shining in his countenance and bearing in his arms the tables of the law, graven in the language of the outlaw. He pretended to not to, he pretended to be ignorant of the Irish language and he pretended to take no interest in events in Ireland. Nevertheless, under the universality of his writing, you can detect all the troubles that were going on in Ireland from 1916 to 1922. For example, when Irish eyes of welcome were smiling daggers down their backs, when the wrath, voice and blows met the noir, blank and rogues, and the grim, white and cold met the black fighting towns, categorically unimperative by the maxims, a rank funk getting the better of him, the scut in a bad fit of pyjamas fled like a leveret for his bare lives, Cusky cocked himself up tight in his ink battle house. Uh, that refers to the accusation that he had deserted Ireland in the time when Ireland was most in need of uh, intellectual men and fighting men to contend with the British Empire, and uh, he candidly admits that uh, a, a rank uh, fright got the better of him and that he kept away from all the troubles. He was not particularly interested in what was going on in the world. That is, uh, he, he, he had a great love for Ireland and, and uh, in one sense. It was his country. Um, that is, uh, it, was, it was the country he grew up in. Uh, but, but he didn't really care what was happening uh, uh, during the time of the Troubles or during the Rising. I don't know of any... any uh, any place in his letters or, or in his biography where he's mentioned, for instance, that, that uh, he was on one side or the other during the rising of 1916. Um, so in that sense, he, you can say that, that he's, not, he's not political. He would never have put his, his neck on the chopping block, so to speak, uh, for, for any political cause. But uh, he was interested in the policies of Arthur Griffith and, and Sinn Féin. But it was a brief thing, and, and it was... Uh, to some extent, uh, what, what Sinn Féin could do for him, you see, as a writer. Because once again, you have to come back to, to Joyce, uh, the egocentristic man, I mean, the character. And to some extent, the, the great tragedy of Joyce is that, is that he could never get beyond, um, uh, beyond the uh, egocentricity. In other words, uh, it, 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 um, one expects a, a writer to be a character. Uh, but... Uh, uh, it would it, it would really be a lot it would have been a, a great deal more healthy I think if he could have assumed the mask which one expects an artist to assume and uh, to to be more human on the side that is to to be really in, in sympathy with with his people and 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 what they what and their aspirations I think Dublin had taught him to guard his tongue very well and he didn't like ever coming down heavily in one different opinion. Partially, I think it was that he didn't believe in fast and hard opinions. The world, as he saw it, was a very complicated place, full of different motives and cross-currents, and he wouldn't come down, definitely, in, in any hard way. You say that somehow that he referred to the Irish as medieval people, to Dublin as a medieval city. Yes, well, he said that we were not... Um, um, uh, see, the Romans had never been in 
in Ireland and that it never had the Lex Romanus and that it's been developed in our own way and he said that um, Ireland was still medieval in thought compared with the French or even the English certainly the Italians where he lived which had the classical outlook but he said Dublin in Ireland we still had a medieval outlook both uh, from the political and the religious point of view We're looking at the Martello Tower which I suppose is one of the most famous landmarks in Ireland because of James Joyce um, Ulysses begins here, this is the famous tower where stately plump Buck Mulligan, otherwise Oliver St. John Gogarty lifted up his shaving bowl and intoned in Trohiba at Altari Day we now can hear I think the sea intoning beside us um, it's rather a wild day um, the tower of course was one of the original um, towers that were built by Pitt to keep Napoleon out. It was never actually used, um, which may, may be a pity, but um, it was still at the time when Joyce and Gogarty lived here for the, that brief period in 1904. It was still owned by the British Minister for War, and they paid a rent of, I think, two shillings a year or something like that. Um, and of course, it is now a museum. It's the Joyce Museum. It's, of course, only open in the summer. Well worth a visit. Everything marvellously displayed. Um, many artefacts belonging to Joyce are shown there, and um, including the waistcoat, uh, this waistcoat which was his father, and the father used to only wear it on special days, so James only wore it on special days too. But it's uh, really worth a visit. And, of course, as I say, this is where the beginning of Ulysses takes place. Leopold Bloom wrote letters to a woman under the pen name of Henry Flower. I discovered that Henry Flower was a police constable in the DMP, and he was held up for the murder of a prostitute in 1900. He came before the court on three or four occasions before it was decided by the jury that uh, he needn't be committed to the to the ordinary jury for trial. Uh, Flower disappeared and was never heard of afterwards, although a, a personal friend of that woman, another woman, confessed on her deathbed to having murdered her 40 years before and uh, that she dipped her in the dollar in order to take whatever uh, money she had earned during the evening. Coming from the Joyce Tower in Sandy Cove, um, that house we passed in Carysfort Avenue, Black Rock, was Leoville, which was the third uh, residence the Joyces had. And, of course, James remembers it very well in the portrait of the artist. Incidentally, there are 17 places, uh, houses in Dublin where Joyce lived. And I think that particular house is one of the ones that has the happiest memories for Joyce. He was a young boy then, and uh, you know he the poverty, the real hard poverty that was to set in later, hadn't hit by then. Um, 
Well, originally, when they used to move from house to house, they had two hand carts. Um, somebody said there were always one jump ahead of the sheriff's posse, but they had two hand carts in those comparatively affluent times. But as time went on, they were reduced to one hand cart. But the family portraits were never carried on the carts. They were hand-carried. And now we're at Sandymount Strand. And Sandymount is peculiarly interesting because two of the chapters of Ulysses take place here. Uh, the first, the most southerly part of the Strand, is the Proteus chapter, which is the second chapter of Ulysses. And the northerly one is the Nausicaa chapter. But the Strand there, where Molly and Eid Gertie and where all that fun and frolic went on, is now being covered by Corporation Phil. So, strictly speaking, it's no longer a strand, but is another example of the vanishing Joyce in Dublin. He was 10 or 11 years writing Ulysses, and the book was getting more complicated as it goes along, so that you can see from the middle of the book onwards to the end that he is really qualifying for the start of a new language, or slanguage, uh, such as he uses in Finnegan's Wake. Now, you also need quite a good knowledge of Irish history and literature and of all the characters that are most prominent in both literature and history and, uh, of course, legend as well, starting off with people like Cormac McCart and Finn McCool, coming down with Brian Baru and ending up with uh, O'Connell and Parnell. O'Connell figures largely simply he's quoted in passing and sometimes he's mixed up with O'Connell Ale. But uh, he's, uh, he gets any emphasis he does get simply because he happened to be a collateral relation of some of Joyce's uh, maternal ancestors. Uh, Parnell was uh, an obsession with the Joyce family. Jack Joyce's father got his first job by uh, participating successfully in having two uh, anti-Tory candidates elected in Dublin in 1880. He got a job immediately from the Liberal government which came in on the defeat of Disraeli at that election. Then he, 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 was, he held that job although he was highly inefficient and uh, lazy from 1880 to 1891. Parnell became head of the new uh, Parnellite party in 1880 and he fell over Kitty O'Shea at the end of 1890, and he died in 1891. Joyce was sacked in 1891 from the position of rate collector, which he had got in 1880, and he always attributed his rise and fall to some mythical connection with Parnell. Uh, James Joyce inherited this obsession, and uh, uh, Tim Healy and the priests and the higher clergy of the Catholic Church in Ireland are constantly being berated on account of their having traitorously hounded Parnell to his death. For me, Joyce is always a Dubliner. I don't think uh, so much on account of uh, the book Dubliners, which I must say, if read in sequence, I found uh, rather monotonous in its uh, indication of paralysis. After all, paralysis is not, is not the most interesting condition of the human subject. 
but I can never open Ulysses without turning to the citizen episode told by the anonymous, bitter-tongued Thersites of a Dubliner, the anonymous one who sees everybody uh, as something to be, in the most exaggerated way, depreciated and pulled down. That is, in a way, a Dublin trait, and uh, most of us had rubbed up against it, I suppose, uh, on our way through Dublin life, and it's pre perhaps it's done us some good because it's, it's saved us from too many social pretensions. Um, I think, of course, that uh, the difference between the man who comes from outside Dublin, or from outside this country, uh, to consider a Joyce, and the man who sees him, as it were, from the inside, without have been, having been prejudiced against him uh, in youth, uh, by some educator, perhaps, uh, I think the difference is that uh, the outside man tends to come expecting that to meet the Dublin of 1904. I think Joyce himself maintained that the Dublin of 1904 could come back, that we'd be uh, ill at ease with it. The gestures, the pace of life, the costumes, everything would be very different, and uh, we might find it uh, perhaps a much less engaging place than many people fancy it. We're standing here now at um, the doorway to Seven Eccles Street, all that remains of it. The facade was knocked down just to the height of the fan light over the door in the 60s, late 60s. And I was fortunate enough to get the actual door itself from the nun, the Dominican nuns who had bought the premises, and I had it transported to the Bailey in Dublin where it still can be seen. The idea being to preserve it because the buildings were in the process of being demolished and I felt if the, if the door wasn't taken care of it would soon end up in a scrap heap or maybe in an American museum. So anyway it's preserved in Dublin. Of course it's terribly important this door this building in Joycean mythology and the history of the whole thing because this is where Leopold Bloom lived. This is the house where Molly Bloom's famous soliloquy takes place. And whereas Ulysses opens in the Martello Tower, uh, it also opens here. It's kind of simultaneous openings because they, the book begins in two places at the one time, rather like at Swim Two Birds begins, I think, in three places at the one time. Um, in actual fact, it was the house of a friend of his, James Francis Byrne, who's a very close friend, who'd been at school with Joyce, and who later emigrated to America and became very famous in, of all things, cryptology, the science of breaking codes, making and breaking codes. And this was a house very often frequented by James himself, James Joyce himself. And when I met his son, Giorgio Joyce, uh, and remembering that when Joyce came back from Trieste in the early part of the century, he had brought Giorgio as a baby then through this door. And I said to Giorgio, you know, you're one of the few people uh, I'll ever know who actually went through the door of number seven Eccles Street. And he said, well, of course, I was a bit too young to remember it then. Of two occasions on which Joyce returned to Ireland from Trieste in 1909, one was to be closely associated with the cinematic history of Dublin. Joyce was to set up the first full-time picture house in the city, the Volta in Mary Street, and to be its first manager. Lenny Collins was his electrician. And I was on the wording of it. That's how he come there. That's how he come we're doing the wording. And then um, Joyce himself was, was up there at times to interpret, you know, 
but uh, he'd disappear then, you wouldn't see him. But uh, did um, we, 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 a- we asked him uh, about, there was the sandwich board man used to go along there in procession, you know? And um, the discussion uh, come along about uh, whether it was um, degrading to be to have a sandwich board. So uh, I, 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 I said no once he was doing So we went to uh, Joyce. Joyce was standing there and we asked him. He wasn't a bit surprised or anything to ask him the question. So he said no, there was no one. Once a man was uh, doing a walk, honest walking around, that uh, there was nothing wrong with it, but very commendable that uh, he, he mightn't have been able to do any other walk, do you know? And so... Um, that solved the, the problem for the two of us about him. He went to school at both in Belvedere, which is just a stone's throw away, and North Richmond Street, which is very near, um, Fitzgibbon Street. The house there is demolished. And then he lived, he lived in Drumcondra. Actually, this area, North Dublin, is the real Joycean area if you take his own life into, into consideration. He lived more of his life here than anywhere else. And then a bit farther down... The modern Waterford Street was the was the night town. Yes, what Mecklenburg Street and all the the Monto, Montgomery Street and all that, which in the middle of the last century, according to the Encyclopaedia Britannica, was the most terrible slum in Europe. But it was also the great red light district of Dublin, and um, of course that features in a whole chapter uh, in Ulysses, the Circe chapter. So we're really in the heart of Joyce Land here. Sylvia Beach. In 1922, a year of war in Ireland gave us Joyce. An exile who in Paris lived our life and through a cunning silence was our voice. He, like the wild geese, fled and yet retained our speech, our humour, all our songs and ways. Remained himself a Dubliner forever and every day lived out his Dublin days. Well, we've come from Eccle Street itself, where we saw what remained of the doorway. Um, and now we are sitting actually beside the door itself of number seven Eccle Street, which is in the Bailey uh, restaurant in Duke Street. And I remember when this door was installed here in 1967. It was brought from Eccle Street, as we mentioned earlier, to here. And at the official dedication of the door, Patrick Kavanagh, the poet, was here, I remember, and Milo Shea, who had recently played the part of Leopold Bloom in Joseph Strick's film version of Ulysses, was also here and he spoke, and Donna McDonough was here and he spoke, and there was a great turnout, but it was left to for Patrick Kavanagh to say the last words. And, of course... Remembering that this door leads nowhere and that once it was placed in position it would never open again, uh, Patrick uh, Kavanagh ended up his peroration by saying, and now, ladies and gentlemen, I declare this door shut. <laughs> 